A video version of this podcast is available at AboundingJoy.com and also on our YouTube pages. Hey guys, thanks for joining me in Bible study today. We're picking up our study of Luke's account of the life of Jesus in Luke chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. In the account we're about to read, Jesus is on the north shore of what we usually call the Sea of Galilee. It also had some other names. Sometimes it was called the Sea of Tiberias. You may remember Tiberius was the Roman emperor who was reigning during the ministry of Jesus. Here, Luke refers to it as the Lake of Gennesaret. We don't see that as often, but Gennesaret was a little town on the northwest shore of the lake, not too far from Capernaum, and you can see it on the map here. And uh, according to the Jewish Talmud, the name Gennesaret came from the name of a kind of tree that grew in that area, maybe that had some fruit on it. While you're looking at that map, you may notice there the city of Bethsaida. You see it at the very northern tip of the Sea of Galilee. Bethsaida is right there where the Jordan River flows into the lake from the north. And John tells us, you may remember, that Bethsaida was the hometown of Peter, as well as Andrew and Philip. So based on the context of what we're reading here in Luke, it's pretty safe to guess that Jesus was almost certainly right in this area somewhere. You may remember, you can see it here on this map, that the Jordan River flowed into the Sea of Galilee, the Lake of Gennesaret from the north, and then at the south end of the Sea of Galilee, it flows back out again and becomes a river again on down towards the Dead Sea. So the lake is primarily fed by the Jordan River. It's also fed with some underground springs, but Jordan River is the main source of its water, fresh water. It's about 13 miles long from the north to the south, about eight miles wide from the east to the west. And Jesus did a lot of ministry in this area. This is how it looks today from the air. You can see the Jordan River there over to the right there as it's flowing into the lake from the north. So this picture you're looking at probably covers the area where Jesus was standing when we pick up this account in verse 1. Here's another picture of the same area from a different angle. In this picture, the Jordan's flowing into the lake from the left side of the picture. So let's look at what Luke says here, verse 1. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. All right, thousands of people are here. They're pressing in on Jesus to hear the word of God. You see, the people not only marveled at Jesus' miraculous works, of course, they did marvel at his healing and his casting out miracles, uh, casting out demons, but they marveled at his teaching. You remember that was that's a theme you hear over and over in the Gospels. You remember what the people said after Jesus had finished the Sermon on the Mount, right at the end of Matthew chapter seven, when Jesus finished these things, the crowds were astonished, astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. A little later, Matthew wrote this, and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? John records the same phenomenon. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he's never studied? <laughs> A little later, John tells us that the chief priests and Pharisees, you remember this, they sent some of their officers to arrest Jesus? But the officers came back without him. 
<laughs> and when the furious Pharisees demanded an explanation from those guys, John writes this. The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. I mean, his words were incredibly powerful. Luke, whom we're studying now, has already pointed this out back in chapter 4. He wrote, all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. They said, isn't this Joseph's son? <laughs> and then Luke wrote, they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. You see that over and over again. And as we saw back in chapter 2, even when Jesus was only a boy of 12, all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when we get to chapter 19, Luke wrote this. He said the religious leaders were really out to kill him. They wanted to put him to death in the worst way at this point. But they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. He's a powerful teacher. And his teaching was so amazing that huge crowds of people were constantly crowding in to hear him. I mean, these were not just little tiny groups of people. Verse 2, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which happened to be Simon Peter's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. So Jesus borrowed Peter's boat, got Peter to move it slightly offshore. That did a couple of things. That enabled Jesus to speak where he could clearly be heard by the multitude of people who were gathering and pressing in on him near the shore. It, it gave him a little bit of room, but it also increased the amplitude of his voice by using the lake kind of just to bounce off the sound waves. Some of us, I'm afraid, have kind of gotten these Images of Jesus' ministry from children's Bible storybooks in our heads. You know, those pictures are in our heads from long ago. And, of course, reading them to our children and grandchildren. And sometimes in those drawings, Jesus is teaching or doing a miracle of some kind. And there are just a few people standing around. They're marveling and they're thrilled. And I'm not trying to run those drawings down by any means. I mean, they, they help us get a grip on what Jesus was doing. But the truth is, once he started teaching and healing and casting out demons... He didn't just draw little crowds of three or four or five or six or 15 or 20 people. There were huge crowds of people wherever he went. Luke chapter 8, we read, Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? And when everybody denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you. They're pressing in on you. Very typical. Luke chapter 12. In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another he began to say to his disciples first, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. But the point I'm making now is there were thousands of people there. Mark chapter 3, he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. And in Mark chapter 5, he went with him and a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. It's hard for us to picture these crowds. You remember, of course, we talk about the feeding of the 5,000. Matthew tells us there were 5,000 men besides the women and children. So scholars usually guess it's probably at least 15,000 that he fed that day. Isn't that amazing? It's really hard for us to picture that. Here's a photo. Someone's estimated there are about 15,000 people in this picture. I didn't try to count them, so I'm not really sure what a good estimate that is. But maybe if we tried to look at that picture 
course, you have to send it back a couple of thousand years. It's a, it's a contemporary picture. But imagine a little rise at one end of this crowd with Jesus standing on it. Maybe, I don't know, you know, maybe it gives us a better idea of what he was dealing with. Anyway, in verse 4, when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep, let down your nets for a catch. <laughs> and Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. <laughs> now, I know it's a little dangerous for me to do this. It's always dangerous to read into the Bible something that isn't there. We, we sometimes want to read between the lines a little too much. But I think based on Peter's words here, we can imagine that Peter's maybe fighting just a little bit of irritation here. For one thing, he's tired. He's been up all night. He's been working hard. He's a fisherman. He knows about fishing. Jesus is a carpenter. <laughs> Peter might legitimately wonder... What does he know about fishing? <laughs> the crowds are scared off the fish, but I don't know. <laughs> but of course, it turns out Jesus knows a whole lot about fishing, doesn't he? <laughs> He's going to show Peter. But what, what's happening here is Peter, even though he may be tired and he may not have much hope of catching any fish, he hasn't caught anything all night, he recognizes the authority of Jesus. So he doesn't deny Jesus, even if he's tired and even if he doesn't really understand, he does know Jesus is in charge. Jesus is his Lord, so he just obeys. And in doing that, what he's doing is setting a good example for the rest of us. Because there are going to be plenty of times when we're tired, right? Maybe we're tempted to be a little cranky and irritable. Things haven't been going the way we'd like for them to go. That is such an important time for us to concentrate on Jesus and say, Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord, I'm going to follow your commands. I'm tired. I don't feel so hot right now, but I'm going to obey you. And that's what Peter did. Verse 6, when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats. So they began to sink. <laughs> Amazing. I guess we could chalk this up to the principle, you're not going to outgive God, right? We, we can't outgive God. Peter gave Jesus the use of his boat. Jesus turned around and gave Peter a huge catch of fish and a demonstration of his power. And in the process, Jesus is teaching Peter, you can trust me, Peter. It may not make much sense to you all the time. Just trust me. Don't trust your own logic. Don't trust your own training. Don't trust your experience. Don't trust your common sense. It's an important lesson for Peter and for us. Now look how Peter reacts. Verse 8. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. Now, this is not the first time Peter has seen Jesus do a miracle. You know, just recently, Jesus did heal Peter's mother-in-law. So Peter's seen the miracles. He knows about the power of Jesus. But there's something about this moment that just sinks in and overwhelms Peter. Peter's been listening to him teach. Jesus has just shown Peter that he has power and authority over creation. And Peter is just overwhelmed. He's conscious of his own sinfulness. He's conscious of the fact that he's in the presence of the Holy Son of God. I think he feels like Isaiah felt. You remember when God revealed himself to Isaiah? And Isaiah said, Woe is me, for I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts, and it overwhelmed Isaiah. God had to raise him up again. 
Remember when God spoke from heaven at the transfiguration of Jesus? Matthew tells us there how the disciples reacted. When the disciples heard this, look what they did. They fell on their faces and were terrified. You remember when Jesus appeared to John after, his, after Jesus' glorification? The glorified Jesus appeared to John on the Isle of Patmos, remember? And John was the apostle probably who was the closest to Jesus during Jesus' earthly ministry. But you, you remember what John wrote? He said, when I saw him, Jesus, the one he was with for three years, but now he's glorified. He said, I fell at his feet as though dead. John was overwhelmed, just like Peter has been here. But he, Jesus, laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I'm the first and the last. And he raises John back up. So this is just one of those overwhelming moments. Peter realizes he's in the presence of absolute holiness, absolute purity, absolute divine power the God of creation, and he's overwhelmed with his own sinfulness and his ugliness and his ignorance. Verse 9, For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. So also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on, you'll be catching men. <laughs> and when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. So Jesus had revealed enough of himself to them. They knew it would be just foolish to keep doing what they'd always been doing. Their life has been changed. They left everything to follow him. Their lives are never going to be the same again. And then eventually they're going to have to endure some pretty horrific suffering because of their commitment to Jesus. Don't forget that. Peter and James are going to die very painful deaths for Jesus. John also would be tortured and persecuted and exiled. Life for them would not only never be the same again, but life for them would be very, very difficult. But it didn't matter. They were with Jesus. They had their focus on Jesus. Their focus had changed from this world to eternity. <laughs> you remember the little song we used to sing a lot, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus, Look Full in His Wonderful Face. And the things of earth will go strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. You remember that song? And to these men, all of a sudden, their boats, their fishing equipment, the, the entire fishing profession, even their homes, they're growing strangely dim because they're in the light of his glory and grace. They turned their eyes on Jesus. And from that moment on, they were in it for the long haul, for eternity. Now, guys, we need to learn from this. We really do. Because we turned our eyes on Jesus, right? Doesn't mean the going's always going to be easy. Sometimes it's rough. It's going to get rough. It's going to be rough again before we finally get there. And we just need to keep turning our eyes upon Jesus. That's the key. And, and like the song says, let the things of earth, troubles, suffering, hardship, difficulties in this life, pain, let it grow strangely dim. You know, there's a newer version of this old song that I really like. You've probably heard it. But I think it, it might just help us in these confusing days we're living in, these difficult days we're living in right now. And I'll remind you before I play it, you are muted. <laughs> so, so feel free to sing along if you want to. It's a wonderful song.
good. It's what we need to do. Turn our eyes upon Jesus and let the things of this earth grow strangely dim.
Well, in verse 12, Luke begins another account that teaches us so much about Jesus. So let's look at it for a few minutes here. Starting in verse 12. While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. <laughs> and immediately the leprosy left him. Lepers were total outcasts. They were unclean. They had to warn people not to get too close to them. They were required to shout out, unclean, unclean, if other people started approaching them. And especially if they were downwind, they had to be way off. It was a horrible disease. In Leviticus, chapters 13 and 14, God deals with this matter of leprosy. And the truth is, we don't know exactly what all kinds of diseases might have been included there in Leviticus. But some scholars believe that the word applies not only to what we call leprosy, which it certainly did apply to. There's no doubt about that. But it may have also applied to other skin diseases as well. It could have been a broader term where the skin might have erupted in, in, in various diseases like maybe measles and smallpox and scarlet fever and things like that. But the quarantine that God required would have helped keep the disease from spreading to others. So it's a little example in God's word of how by following God's instructions, the Israelites were giving an example to the rest of the world of a way to keep infectious diseases from spreading. They didn't understand bacteria at that point in time or viruses or anything. But the, but the leprosy itself, we call it Hansen's disease now, was a horrific disease, still is. It's a horrific disease. Let's just read part of an article on leprosy. It's written by Dr. Alan Gillen. You can find it, by the way, on the Answers in Genesis website if you want to read it for yourself. And I'm going to put some photos up as I read this just to kind of illustrate the horror of this disease. Its symptoms start in the skin and peripheral nervous system outside the brain spinal cord. Then spread to other parts, such as the hands, feet, face, earlobes. Patients with leprosy experience disfigurement of the skin and bones, twisting of the limbs, curling of the fingers to form the characteristic claw hand. Facial changes include thickening of the outer ear and collapsing of the nose. Tumor-like growths called lepromas may form on the skin and in the respiratory tract, and the optic nerve may deteriorate. The largest number of deformities develop from loss of pain sensation due to the extensive nerve damage. For instance, inattentive patients can pick up a cup of boiling water without even flinching. It was the work of Dr. Paul Brand, the late world-renowned orthopedic surgeon and leprosy physician with leprosy patients that illustrated in part the value of sensing pain in this world. The leprosy bacillus destroys nerve endings that carry pain signals. Therefore, patients with advanced leprosy experience a total loss of physical pain. When these people cannot sense touch or pain, they tend to injure themselves or be unaware of injury caused by an outside agent. In fact, some leprosy patients have had their fingers eaten by rats in their sleep because they were totally unaware of it happening. The lack of pain receptors could not warn them of the danger. So that's a pretty gruesome description of a horrible disease. But leprosy is more than a horrific physical disease. 
Leprosy turns out to be a living parable of the way sin works. It starts very small, but eventually it leads to horrific consequences, deformed lives. And as it continues its work in our lives, it numbs us to the horrific pain that should warn us of the death that it's working in our lives and the destruction that it's working in our lives. So it reminds us of the importance of pain in our lives. None of us really want to experience any kind of pain. We usually ask God to please spare us pain. But pain, whether it's physical or emotional or spiritual, whatever kind of pain it is, it's often God's way of signaling us that something is wrong. So we ought to see it as a valuable gift. It's an opportunity to do something about something that's wrong. And the absence of pain, when there should be pain, can have really horrific consequences. That's why God warns us about the danger of a seared conscience where we don't feel the pain of the sin anymore in our own minds and hearts and emotions. And that's why we know that someone who's living in sin, they need to feel pain. Sometimes we pray that, don't we? That God would bring whatever painful consequences He needs into their lives so they can realize the horror of their sin. Now, we... (laughs) especially those who have gifted mercy, but most of us feel like, oh, I, I, Lord, spare them as much pain as possible. We don't want to see them hurt too badly. But Lord, we'd rather see them go through some pain and come to repentance so they don't experience the destruction that sin's leading them to. So if it takes pain, Lord, let them feel the pain. So there are powerful lessons to be learned here from leprosy and this whole concept of uncleanness. And even though leprosy might be the preeminent example of uncleanness, it wasn't the only example. In Leviticus, people were warned. You remember this? There are many different things that they were to consider unclean. And they weren't supposed to touch them. And if they did, you know what happened? They themselves would become unclean. And then they'd have to go through a certain period of time, waiting, and a certain cleansing rituals and sacrifices in order to regain the status of being clean. So there were certain animals, of course, like pigs. They were unclean to them. Gentiles were unclean to the Jews. Jews wouldn't even eat with them. Remember that? Women having their period were unclean to the Jews. Dead animals were unclean to them. And of course, skin diseases like leprosy were unclean to them. Now, this is very important, so stay with me here. If a ritually clean person touched something unclean, That didn't make the unclean thing become clean, did it? Because the person who touched it was clean. It didn't make the unclean thing become clean. What happened was just the opposite. The clean person who touched it became unclean also. That's the way it works. Same principle works today. If I had two glasses of water here, one of them pure sparkling water and the other sewer water, and, I, and, I, and I'm standing here in front of you with them, and I, I could pour the pure water into the sewer water, but that wouldn't make it pure, would it? You still wouldn't drink from the glass of sewer water. Even if I poured a whole lot of clean water into the glass, you're not going to drink from that glass. No, of course not. But pouring the sewer water into the pure water does make it impure, right? You're not going to... If I, if I poured even just a few drops of, of the sewer water into the clean water, you, you won't drink the clean water either. Clean water can't make the sewer water clean, but sewer water can make the clean water impure. Same kind of way, you know, with contagious diseases. If one child has a highly contagious disease and another child is perfectly healthy and you put them in the 
same room so they can play together. Healthy child's not going to make the sick child well, but there's a good possibility the sick child will make the healthy child sick. That's just the way it works. Unclean, impure, diseased things contaminate clean, pure, healthy things. It's not the other way around. And of course, this is a physical picture of a spiritual reality, right? I mean, the Bible warns us about the danger of being drawn into sin by our association with others. The Bible warns us of this several times. Remember, Paul wrote this to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Most of us have made our kids memorize that. Point is, if we start hanging out with people who make bad moral decisions, there's a great danger that we also will begin to make bad moral decisions. That's just kind of the way it works. Paul also wrote this to the Corinthians. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Do you remember the context when he said that? That's in 1 Corinthians 5. The context was a man in the church living in immorality. And the church hadn't dealt with it. And Paul said, you've got to deal with it. If you allow a little bit of sin in the church, it won't be long till that sin spreads throughout the church. If we say or imply by our inaction or by refusing to speak up that a certain sin is no big deal, others will accept it quickly. A little leaven leavens a whole lump. And we don't like to do that, do we? It's painful to deal with people in sin. A lot of times we just hope the preacher will kind of deal with it from the pulpit. But even that usually doesn't work because people it just goes over people's heads. People have to be helped personally by someone who loves them enough and cares enough to say what you're doing is wrong and you're going to face some really bad outcomes unless you repent. A little leaven leavens a whole lump. It won't just be that person. It'll be the whole group of people. The writer of Hebrews wrote this. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God that no, listen to this, root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled. There's the same danger. One person gets a root of bitterness, the next thing you know, spreads. The unclean contaminates the clean. So the writer of Hebrews is warning us, if you allow a root of bitterness to spring up and cause trouble, it won't be long because other people are affected too. Now, I'm going to say something else though. Now this is so important, please don't miss this. Jesus is totally different. <laughs> When Jesus touches the unclean, Jesus doesn't become unclean. The unclean becomes clean. Jesus has power over the unclean. It's awesome. And his relationship to sin is the same as his relationship to leprosy. <laughs> because he refused the temptation to sin himself. Because he voluntarily took our sin curse on himself to pay for our sins. Sin couldn't destroy him. He conquered it. He didn't stay dead. He rose again. He undid the curse, the curse of death. So when we come to him and confess our uncleanness, Jesus touches us, just like he touched that man with leprosy. And he undoes the contamination of the sin. He undoes death, just as he undid that leprosy. It's awesome. So here there's very powerful truth being communicated when Jesus heals lepers. We want to, we want to make sure we understand it all. As much as we can. Let's go on. And he charged him to tell no one, but to go show yourself to the priest, make an offering for your cleansing as Moses commanded for a proof to them. This was the way the leper would be readmitted back in society around him. God had given specific instructions for this back in Leviticus 14. 
procedures for lepers if they happen to be healed. It's interesting, though, that Jesus told him to tell no one. That's not the first time Jesus said that either. He says it many times in his ministry. In Mark chapter 1, Jesus refused to allow demons to testify the truth about him. And, of course, that's different. I mean, he knew that demons are essentially liars, and they're only going to use the truth to twist it and deceive people. So that made sense. But it was not unusual for Jesus to tell people that he healed to keep quiet about it, too. Matthew 9, after he healed two blind men, we read, Jesus sternly warned them, see that no one knows about it. Matthew 12, we read, many followed him and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. And at first, that seems strange to us, doesn't it? We scratch our heads and say, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute, Jesus, you don't want people to know? Why? I mean, don't you want people to know you're the Messiah? Why don't you encourage those that you healed? Go tell other people. Why not spread the good news? There have been several possible explanations offered by different Bible scholars. Some have speculated that maybe Jesus didn't want people hearing a secondhand story. It could get distorted in telling him. He wanted them to hear it and experience him face to face, firsthand. Maybe. Another possibility is that he didn't want to just have the reputation of being a miracle worker. He never sought to have people follow him just because he could do miracles. Maybe. Another possibility is that he knew that the more people publicized his miracles, the more they were likely to push him toward being a political messiah. And he had no intention of letting that happen. And of course, there's some truth to that. There were those who just wanted him to overthrow Rome. Another possibility is that he wanted to keep the anger from the religious leaders at a minimum until his time was fulfilled. There was going to be a time for him to be crucified, but it wasn't yet. And every time they heard of another miracle, they were furious. So that could have complicated things more. That's a possibility. Another possibility is that Jesus knew that this was not yet the time for his being exalted, so he didn't want to have to deal with that pressure. Another possibility is that the more his miracles were publicized, the bigger the crowds. And large crowds of people could actually make it very difficult to carry out his ministry. And actually, that seems to be what he's suggesting here in the next couple of verses. So let's look at verse 15 and 16. But now... Even more, the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities, but he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. When Mark reports this, I think he's a little more explicit and makes it even clearer, but he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town but was out in desolate places, and people were coming to him from every quarter. So it seems like Satan was trying to mess up Jesus' plan and Jesus' timing. You know, Jesus had perfect timing for everything. And it seemed like Satan may have thought, maybe I can mess up the timing, and he would use Jesus' own popularity with the people to try to paralyze his ministry, to shut down his activity. So his strategy at this point may have just been to try to keep him from moving about much, to freeze everything. You know, Jesus couldn't freely teach and minister if, if there were crowds just pressing in on him constantly. Verse 17. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. 
Again, the point is clear here. Jesus has gotten a lot of attention. Multitudes are coming to hear him, and now a bunch of Pharisees and experts in Jewish law are coming too. Why? They had to check him out. He's making them very nervous. If half the things they're hearing about him turn out to be true, their authority, their influence with the people is going to be severely challenged. Challenged by Jesus, challenged by the people who are starting to follow Jesus, getting less excited about these Jewish leaders. And eventually, if this continues, they know they're going to be challenged by the Roman authorities too. So they're keeping an eye on Jesus. They're watching, looking for a chance to trap him. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in, because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. Whoa. (laughs) And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you? Or to say, Rise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. (laughs) I love it. It's one of our favorite stories. We remember this from our children's Bible stories too, don't we? So Jesus is saying, Hey guys, you're right. Who can forgive sins but God alone? But think about it. Who can genuinely heal a paralyzed man but God alone? It doesn't take any less deity to heal than it does to forgive sin. Only God can make unclean things clean. Whether the cause is sin or the cause is disease. So Jesus is saying, if I have the power to heal a paralyzed man, it makes total sense that I have the power to forgive sin, doesn't it? Think about it. Jesus is giving them a chance to recognize who he really is. This is not blasphemy, as they're claiming. He's the real thing. He's the truth. The true God is in their midst. (laughs) And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he'd been lying on and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all. And they glorified God and they were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi. By the way, this man's also called Matthew. He had both names. It's not unusual in Bible days. We don't know the whole story behind his name change. Some speculate he may have changed his own name so that people in his community would know he was a changed man. He wanted to know so he changed his name. That makes sense. The Bible doesn't tell us that. He's no longer the hated tax collector that he once was. Matthew means gift of God. Anyway, he's sitting at the tax booth and he said to him, Jesus said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. (laughs) That was a scandalous thing for Jesus to do. You realize that tax collectors were grouped together with the worst of sinners. They were working for the hated Romans. They were perceived to be thieves. Most of them were thieves. (laughs) Their theft was protected by the power of the Roman government. So the Jews hated these guys. If a tax collector had told any other Jewish rabbi, hey, I would really like to follow you, the rabbi would have said, over my dead body, no way, you're not going to follow me, you're disgusting. Get out of my sight. No tax collector will ever be one of my followers, you scum. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's how most Jewish rabbis reacted. But Jesus always takes a lot of joy, doesn't he, in choosing the outcasts, the weak, the non-celebrities, 
to be his followers? Now, I know, and we, we always need to say this, sometimes he chooses celebrities too, and we're thankful for that. But when he does, we've got to remember this, they, just like Paul, have to come to the end of themselves. A celebrity can't say, well, boy, look what I can do for God. That would be stupid. They don't really know Jesus yet, do they? <laughs> they have to get past their celebrityhood and humble themselves just like any other sinner in the presence of Christ. And thankfully, some of them do. Any, any of them that become Christians do. Paul did. Nicodemus did. Joseph of Arimathea did. Anyway, other rabbis would have hated Levi, this tax collector scum. Jesus, Jesus loved him. That's beautiful. Verse 29, And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with him. <laughs> this would have been so disgusting to most other Jewish people, especially those Jewish leaders. Levi, Matthew, wanted his friends to meet Jesus. So now it isn't just one disgusting man that Jesus dares to fellowship with. He's in a whole house full of them, disgusting people. And what's he doing? He's in there loving them. <laughs> and they're loving Jesus. And the religious leaders are deeply offended and furious. That's Jesus. Verse 30, the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? You can almost hear them gag when they say it. You see, they, these guys, these scribes, these Pharisees, they prided themselves on their own righteousness and their own holiness. And by that, they would have meant we are separated from sinners like this. So when they see Jesus eating with sinners and tax collectors, it was a major, scandalous, disgusting act. You can just almost hear their, Jesus is doing what? <laughs> You've got to be kidding me. Rabbis just didn't do that. And, and Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So these scribes and Pharisees thought they were spiritually healthy. They were proud of their righteousness, their spiritual health. And Jesus is saying, well, you're not going to go to a doctor until you realize you're sick. And I happen to be the spiritual doctor. I'm the healer. People who realize they're spiritually sick, they're going to come to me for help. You guys don't think you're sick. So, of course, you're not going to come to me to be healed. Someone has a deadly cancer growing in his body but he's oblivious to it. He's not going to go for help. He has to realize he has a problem. And some people have been known to refuse to believe their doctor's diagnosis when he tells them they've got a problem. They say, it can't be. I can't have cancer. I feel fine. They may even refuse the necessary treatment that could help heal them because they're in denial. Same thing with sin. And one of our responsibilities as followers of Jesus is to do our best and pray for wisdom and grace and opportunities to graciously compassionately, gently, lovingly, but firmly try to help people realize that we are all sinners. All of us, we're all sick. We're all selfish. We're all self-centered. We're full of ourselves. We tell lies. We get angry. Just down the list. We all need a spiritual physician. Now, of course, ultimately, it's going to take the work of the Holy Spirit. We know that for them to see the problem. But the Holy Spirit uses our prayers. That's the way he chooses to work, through our prayers and our words and our lives. But listen, guys, it's very irresponsible for us to pretend others are healthy when God says they're sick just because they don't feel sick. You understand what I'm saying? 
That's why it's so dangerous for churches today to try to stay kind of quiet about the sins of the sexual revolution. Do you realize there are many, many churches out there that will not talk about these sins? Why? Because they think people don't want to hear it. People don't realize they have a sin problem. And the churches realize, well, we don't want to run people off, do we? So we just won't say anything. Maybe later we can get their attention and say something. <laughs> it's like agreeing with a friend who's trying to convince you that his liver cancer or his colon cancer or his lung cancer or his pancreatic cancer is really no big deal. And if we love our friends, we cannot do that in the physical realm. You know that. We can't do it in the spiritual realm either, guys. This is such an important verse. Jesus said, I came to call sinners to repentance. We're all sinners. And there's sinners all around us. Many of them don't realize how sick they are. They're like the lepers who've lost their pain sensitivity. And all through our sick nation, we've got sinners. We're sick with sin. And we, of course, need to pray for their repentance. We need to do whatever we can to introduce them to the true Jesus, not an imaginary Jesus that they dream up who agrees with them about their sin. No, no, no. The true Jesus, the Jesus who is the God of truth, because without him, they are dying. Without him, they're headed for destruction. With him, they can be healed and they can live forever. That's what Jesus is telling us here. So let's pray that we can do that better. Father, Thank you so much for telling us more about Jesus in this awesome chapter of Luke. Jesus, you're awesome, and you certainly deserve all praise and glory and honor. And you know us. We tend to be weak and selfish and fearful and quiet when we need to speak up. Uh, we need more courage, Lord. I pray you'd give us courage. Lord, we know that you're what people need, but Lord, a lot of people don't want to hear it. So we're asking you to work in hearts all around us and our people in our lives and all over this land, Lord. People desperately need to be convicted of sin. People need to repent. People need to come to Jesus. And Lord, we pray that you would supernaturally work, that you would raise up godly men and women across this land with courage and love to speak your truth and to present Jesus in such a way that others can see the true Jesus and come to Jesus and be healed and be forgiven so they can have eternal life with us. Lord, help us to have the kind of attitude you want us to have. Help us to be ready, to be instruments in your hands, to speak the words, to live the life, uh, to, to pray the prayers, to help others. Lord, we want to be more like Jesus himself. So please use us that way. We know ultimately, Lord, we can't be the Holy Spirit. You have to do that work of conviction. You have to draw them to yourself and grant them repentance. But we pray that you would use us in any way you choose. We want to be sensitive to you. Thank you so much for teaching us what you've taught us here in this wonderful chapter of Luke. Thank you for raising up Luke and causing him to write this awesome gospel. Thank you for the opportunity to study it. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for never leaving us. Help us, Lord, to remember when things get rough and times get tough, that we can turn our eyes on Jesus and the things of this world will grow strangely dim. We love you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.